here. Kevin walks in. I'm like, all right, all right. Uh, good to see everybody. Glad you're with us. My name is Ben. I'm lead pastor here. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 today. Hebrews chapter 11. If you want to turn there. If you're new around here as we're turning there, I just want to not only welcome you, but invite you to starting point that's happening, as you saw in the announcements, right after service. It's about 15, maybe 20 minutes, and uh, just an opportunity to get to know people in our church, uh, get to know the leaders, a little bit about our vision, and ask questions you might have, but it's, it's a great time to just get to know people. It'll be right next door in the gym, okay? We're going to look at just one verse today, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. And uh, after I read it, you can also kind of keep your position over in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be referencing Genesis chapter 6 quite a bit. But just one verse from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Hear the reading of God's Word. By faith Noah, being warned by God or concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Amen. Amen. We're continuing our series called Enduring Faith, Enduring by Faith. And I want to tag our text today, Hidden Faith. Hidden Faith. Let's pray before we begin. Father, uh, just as we sung, you are the one who fights our battles. What a perfect song for this entire series. That it's by faith that we endure whatever sin we may battle, whatever suffering we may come up against, whatever the, the battle is, Lord, you are our victor. And so we pray, God, as we look at this text and we look at the life of Noah and ask that you would speak by your Holy Spirit to encourage our souls, to challenge us wherever we need to be challenged, that we might be more like your son Jesus, to bring you more glory. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In, uh, in 2014, about 22 people boarded a roller coaster in L.A. at Six Flags called The Ninja. Now, anytime you get on a roller coaster, I don't know if you're roller coaster type people or not, but you're, you're expecting a, a thrill, right? You're expecting something that is going to be a little bit crazy on, on some level if it's a good roller coaster, but what they ex ended up experiencing was not what anyone expected. In fact, it was their greatest nightmare. About halfway through the ride, the car ran into a branch that was hanging just a little too low, close to the track, and it dislodged the front car, and the whole thing came to this screeching halt. You know, as soon as that happens, everyone's panicking, people are screaming, people are crying, they're, they're yelling and asking questions in their heart, kind of going to the worst case scenario, are we going to die, are we going to fall, you know, what, what's happening? And as people were panicking, of course, the, the people at the bottom, they call the fire department, and it takes the fire department three hours to get them all out. Three hours, because they had to come and bring all these trucks and get everyone one by one down, and they had to go around the tree, and it was so complicated. Three hours they hung there with just their chest harness, keeping them from death. Thankfully, everybody was safe. All 22 people came out safe, just a few minor injuries. But they were interviewing the people afterwards as they came down one by one, and each of them said, I don't think I'll ever ride a roller coaster again. The fear was too great. 
Like there, it was just this traumatic event that, that began to shape how they felt about roller coasters. And I don't know about you, but fear in many ways can be paralyzing, right? I mean, fear comes in different forms, different shapes, different types of fear. You might be afraid of spiders, and so you walk into your kitchen and you see a spider in the corner and you jump on the table like you're that afraid. I don't know. It might be heights for you. Just the thought of being high in the air makes you sweat. Or it could be something a little more personal, like it could be you're afraid of being vulnerable. Because if people start to really know what's going on in your life, I don't know if I can handle that. You might be afraid that other people might bail on you, or you might be afraid of failure, or you might be afraid of abandonment. I don't, I don't know what it is in your life, but all of us on some level, we've experienced that paralyzing fear. That sense of, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can do this again because I'm so afraid. And it's true. I mean, fear can be paralyzing, but fear can also be protecting, right? I mean, there's certain fears. It's, it's good to be afraid of the cars on I-4. Like, it's, it's not a safe environment. You might want to have a little bit of fear as you're driving. There's a sense that there can be good fear and there can be bad fear. But no matter what kind of fear it is, there's no doubt that fear is always motivating. It's moving you to something. And, and so we come to this text today looking at that comparison, how fear relates to our faith. And like I said, we're continuing this series through Hebrews 11. Uh, we're, we're calling this Enduring by Faith because in the context of Hebrews, the church, the local church, was under extreme persecution, extreme suffering. The local church was struggling because the governing authorities, the Roman Empire, they were pushing against them and, and causing these problems where people were losing their jobs, they were losing their homes. Some of the churches weren't able to meet. I mean, it was, it was a very difficult time to be a Christian. And as these Jewish Christians were wrestling with the, the reality of their circumstances, there's a sense that fear was on the rise and faith was declining. People were starting to ask questions about, should I even believe in Jesus anymore? Should I give up and go back to my Jewish faith because I wasn't getting persecuted? It wasn't so hard. I, I can get my job back. I can get my home back. I, I can have an easier life if I give up Jesus and go back. And so in the middle of this, in the middle of the hardest moment many of them had faced, this is what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10. This is the context. He says, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Get this, for you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. He's saying to this group of Christians, as, as the fear in your heart begins to rise and you question whether Jesus is worth it, listen to how faith and fear go together. Listen to how these two things that you think might be in, in objection to one another, how they actually work together. And, and he, he gives this concept through the life of Noah, the story of Noah from the Hall of Faith. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first thing I want to look at is things unseen, because the life of Noah gives us this picture of, of things unseen. Look at verse 7 again with me, just the first part of it. It says this, by faith, and this is how he always starts out. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. 
Now stop right there. This is fascinating because, I mean, many of us are probably familiar with the story of Noah. Hollywood has recently done a movie based on Noah's story. I haven't seen it. I have no idea if it's any good. But usually in our culture, Noah is, uh, is, is kind of like a children's story. I mean, we, we decorate the children's ministry of many churches with animals and arcs and, you know, rainbows and, and clouds. And it's just, it's this cute little children's story. It's kind of like a floating zoo. But really, when you read the Bible, it's not so cheery. It's actually a story of judgment and grace. It's like a near-death experience. That's the story of Noah. And to give you some context, in in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, this is how God kind of summarizes the the moment that Noah was living in. He says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, you you go from Adam and Eve, where it's bad, right? They're sinners just like us, but it starts to grow and multiply and multiply and multiply to where sin gets nearly out of control. It's so bad. This is one of the worst descriptions in the Bible of any environment of sin you've seen. Only evil continually. God sees the violence. He sees the greed. He sees the selfishness. He sees the rampant uh, evil in earth. And he says, "I, I can't do this. I mean, one of the the hardest things you read in this text is God just grieves. God laments. He is broken over our brokenness. And he actually says to Noah, he says, I I wish I never had done this. I mean, could you imagine God saying it's gotten so bad, we got to start over. And so he says, I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to bring judgment because I can't let this evil continue. And so he tells Noah, I'm going to bring a flood, and and this flood is going to wipe out all the people uh, in in creation, all all of creation, not not just the people, everything that has breath is what he says. Everything that's on the ground that has breath. He says, but I'm going to offer you the opportunity to be saved, to uh, to, to be safe in the middle of this flood and this storm, and, and here's what it's going to be. I want you to build an ark. I want you to build a boat, like a really large boat. Could you, if you can imagine, this boat is going to be a football field and a half. It's going to be four stories high. I mean, this is a massive boat. Only one problem, Noah. You've never seen a boat. Like at this point, Noah, in, in human history, there, there'd never been a boat. There had never been something like this. And so here's Noah in the middle of the desert, about 100 miles from the nearest ocean, and God tells him to build a boat that he's never seen about a judgment that's coming in 120 years that he has not seen. I mean, he is building this boat on nothing but a promise for 120 years. And and this is what Genesis says. I'm sorry, Hebrews says, Hebrews 11 says, faith is, right, the assurance of things uh, hoped for, the conviction of things, what, not seen, right? The, the writer of Hebrews is looking at the story of Noah, and he's saying this is exactly how faith works, that it's a conviction of things not seen. Noah couldn't see the boat, he couldn't see the judgment, yet he had a promise from God, and he said, I'm going to trust that promise. 
I'm going to believe what he said, and then I'm going to act on what he said. You catch that? He takes his belief, and then he acts. He takes what God says, and then he does something. That's faith. See, faith, faith puts feet on promises. It puts feet on the promises of God. Um, uh, in, in, in 19, sorry, 1855, there was a man named Charles Blondin, and they called him the daredevil of Niagara Falls. And Charles Blondin, was, he was crazy. This man was nuts. He decided in 1855 he was going to tightrope across Niagara Falls. Tightrope. No net, nothing, just the falls below him. And so he gathers together this crowd of people. There were some 25,000 people who had gathered to watch him. And, and you know, they're, they're waiting to see the, the catastrophe that's going to happen. And so he sets it up and he walks across Niagara Falls by himself. Everyone's cheering and, 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 the, and the crowd is going wild. And then he looks to the crowd after he does it one time and he says, do you think I can do it again? And everybody says, we believe, we believe. And so he says, do you think I could do it again with a wheelbarrow? And they say, we believe, we believe. So he grabs a wheelbarrow and he pushes the wheelbarrow across the line and walks all the way back with the wheelbarrow. This is a true story. Crazy man. And then he gets back this, after the second time and he looks at the crowd. Everybody's cheering. He says, do you think I could do it again? We believe, we believe. Do you think I could do it with someone in the wheelbarrow? And they say, we believe, we believe. All right, who's going to be the first volunteer? <laughs> Silence. And then the 25,000 people slowly disperse. All right, they, they believed, but they didn't trust. They believed, but they didn't trust. And what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is faith is belief plus trust. Faith is this, I, I'm going to do more than just believe in an intellectual way, right? Faith is not only an intellectual assent. Faith is not only an agreement with a set of tenets. Faith isn't only a confession of doctrinal truth. Faith gets in the wheelbarrow. Faith is this idea that, that, that you're taking action upon what you believe to be true. You're, you're moving into uh, the, this realm of, of doing something on what you say you believe. It, it's what the New Testament calls in, in James. Famously, James says, faith without works is what? Dead. Dead. Right? James is not saying that your faith is, is, uh, is not true. He's saying it has to work to be true. In other words, the, the proof of your faith is not that you believe. The proof of your faith is that it works. That's what real faith is. And for Noah, faith in the work of God, faith in the promise of God, meant that he had to work. Right? He was showing that he trusted God and his promise by actually building the ark. He couldn't just say with his mouth, I believe. He had to, with his life, say, I will build. I will build the ark. And I think one of the biggest problems we have in the church and in the culture is we are much more comfortable with a faith that's simply belief. We are much more comfortable with a faith that is just a kind of cultural Christianity where we have traditional moral values. We have principles that we live by. We have good doctrinal truth. 
And not that any of those things are necessarily bad, but, but what the Bible is saying, what Hebrews 11 is saying is that faith is more than just what you say you believe. Faith has to actually act. Faith, faith is coming out of you in what you do. It radically changes the way you live and also the way you interpret how your life is happening. And so by faith, you can say to God, God, I don't understand what you're doing in my marriage, but I trust you. Right? By faith, God, I don't understand why I'm walking through this painful moment in my life, but I trust you. You see the difference? God, I don't, I don't have my mind wrapped around what, what's going on and this sin that I keep struggling with and this addiction that I can't get over, but God, I trust you. I trust you. It's more than I understand. It's I trust. I trust. I'll get in the wheelbarrow. Because, listen, what we're saying when we say we're trusting a promise is we're saying we're trusting a person. Right? Think about everyone who's made you a promise. It's not the promise that makes you trust it. It's the person who gives it. It's the person who gives the promise. It's God is trustworthy, or God's promises are trustworthy because He is trustworthy. He is the trustworthy person. And so when He's inviting us into trust by faith, what He's saying is, I, I want you to be vulnerable. Right? You're not just trusting a principle, you're trusting a person. I want you to take a risk. I want you to realize this, this is personal. You're, you're trusting me. I, I may not let you know what's going to happen. I may not give you an indication of how this all makes sense, but you're trusting me. You hear that? Faith is, is, is belief plus trust. It's, it's as Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, when you can't see the hand of God, you have to trust the heart of God. I love that because what, what he's saying is if you can't trace his hand, if, if you can't make sense of all the things he's doing or why he's allowing this sin to, to wrestle in your heart, if you can't make sense of what's going on in that friendship that seems to be falling apart, if you can't trace his hand, you have to go back and trust his heart that the promise is because it's coming from him as a person. So what does it look like when you're not doing that? Right? When, when you give up living by faith in the promise and, 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 and we're not doing that, what does that look like? Well, there's a wrong fear that takes over. This is the second point, fear and faith. Look, look again at verse 7. He goes on to say this, that in reverent fear, he, that's Noah, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Now, the author of Hebrews is getting at Noah's heart, right? He's zeroing in in the story in, in Noah's heart to say, what, what is motivating Noah? What's moving Noah to act in this faith? And he uses this fascinating term. He says it's, it's reverent fear. The NIV translates it holy fear, right? The, the word can mean to, to take care, to be cautious, or even to have this sense of being devout, right? It's to walk carefully, and, and it's, it's the same theme that you see all throughout the Old Testament. Very often, it's called the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord, and, that, and that's a term that has a specific meaning to it. In fact, it's, it's a key meaning in the Old Testament. Proverbs 9 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But even though it's this common theme and it's a key theme, many people don't understand what it means. I mean, what, what does the fear of the Lord mean? Does that mean we should be terrified of God? Does that mean that you know, we, we should walk around 
trembling on our feet and wondering if God's going to strike us with lightning. Is that what it means? No. The fear of the Lord was, was this sense of, of, uh, of, of intimate trust. Right? It's, it's, it's not terror, it's, it's trust. It's, it's built on, on a relationship. Martin Luther famously said it's different. Uh, it's the difference between the, the slave who fears his master and the son who fears his father. Right? The relationship is different. It, it's not a fear of, of judgment or, or harshness. It's, it's a fear of respect and reverence and love and, and family. It's, it's this intimate, personal trembling. It's a completely different kind of fear, this fear of the Lord. In fact, uh, it's comparable to, uh, I was thinking recently about ABC's Why World of Sports. It used to be this popular show that was on TV for a long time, and uh, they had the introduction to the show. And if anyone's ever watched the show, there's this famous crash in the, in the beginning of the introduction. It's this ski jumper. And, and it's this moment where it says, uh, the agony of defeat. And, and right as they're, the voiceover is saying, agony of defeat, the guy's going down the slope, and then everything's looking good, and all of a sudden he just tumbles over himself, crashes off to the side. And it's like, you know, it's become famous as making fun of this guy. Like, how, how could everything look so great, and all of a sudden you fail? But then years later, he was interviewed about that because he had become famous for failing. And they asked him, what happened? What happened in this jump? And he said that uh, actually it was on purpose. Now, I don't, you know, everybody says that. We, but, but he says actually it was on purpose. He says, I, I was looking ahead and, and I was going too fast and, and the ice was too slick. And if I would have jumped, I knew going that fast, I would have gone past the safe landing zone and I would have hit the wall on the other side of the safe landing zone and I could have died. He said, I made a split second decision. I just had to decide, am I going to risk that jump or am I going to just fall now? And so he fell because it was, it was the fear of the jump. It was the fear of, of the unknown out there. It was so much that he didn't know that the fear of, of looking like a fool was less. And so he said, I'm just going to fall. And his fear, that good fear, that self-protecting fear actually saved his life. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying is he's comparing these two kinds of fears in Noah. He's saying in reverent fear, in the fear of the Lord, Noah builds the ark. But there's another kind of fear that was right there beside Noah the whole time he's building the ark. I mean, could you imagine for 120 years, 120 years, you're building an ark, a boat that no one's ever seen. I mean, they're mocking Noah the whole time. You say judgment is coming. What are you talking about? Look at it. It's blue skies. We haven't seen rain ever. Like, we're in the middle of the desert. What are you talking about? I mean, the New Testament calls him a preacher of righteousness. He was out there for 120 years preaching and no one's listening. Preaching and no one's coming. Preaching and no one cares. They're just mocking him and ridiculing him. And in the middle of that, I guarantee you that the fear of man was creeping up, believing that their words mattered more, their power mattered, mattered more, their approval mattered more. In the middle of that, there's this, this other kind of fear, the fear of man that was rising up. And, and listen, fear isn't opposed to faith. In fact, it's absolutely essential to faith. The question is, what do you fear? Right? Fear, or sorry, faith is about what you fear. It's either God or people. One is a holy fear, 
And the other is an idolatrous fear. Because idolatry is when you make people into gods. You make people into gods. People become bigger than God. I mean, we don't call it idolatry, right? We have, we have nicer words for things like that. Like when you're young, you call, it, uh, you call it peer pressure, right? You're a teenager, you call it peer pressure. We don't call it idolatry. When you get older, you call it people pleasing. We don't call it idolatry. We, we call it people pleasing. When, when you get into therapy, you, you call it codependency. We don't call it, I mean, idolatry. No, it, it sounds better when you're codependent. But whatever you call it, the Bible calls it the fear of man. It's, it's this idea that, that you've elevated the, the opinion and the approval of other people over God. Yep. Counselor Ed Welch, he has a phenomenal book on this called When People Are Big and God Is Small. People are big and God is small. The whole book is about the fear of man. And his point, his overall point is this, you've flipped the fears. You were designed for fear, but you were designed for a certain kind of fear. You were designed for the fear of the Lord that, that is really another way of saying trusting in faith, not a fear of man where it's another way of saying you're trusting and putting your faith in people. Right? He, he's saying you flipped that. And, and what happens is it happens in all of our relationships. We, we become these approval addicts. I mean, take any relationship. Take your marriage with your spouse. You, you become an approval addict, and, and you start seeking the approval of your spouse in an unhealthy way. I mean, your, your spouse, I mean, it's, it's a good, healthy marriage when you are having the approval of your spouse. That's not bad. It's not, it's not wrong to desire your spouse to, to approve of you and love you and all of those wonderful things. But when their opinion of you and their approval of you gets elevated above God's approval of you, and what they say about you and how they treat you matters more than what God says about you and how He treats you, you have an idol. Now, now you've flipped and, and your fears are, are out of order. Right? When the Bible talks about idolatry, all it means is you have an over-desire. The good has become ultimate. What, what was designed for good uh, in any relationship has now become ultimate and God has shrunk down to He doesn't matter and so you have an idol. What do you do? I mean, how, how do you live like that? I mean, you can no longer be honest because you're afraid. You can no longer be vulnerable because you're afraid. You can no longer love because you're afraid. Yep. I mean, it's any relationship. It's your coworkers. It's your boss. It's, it's your neighbor. It's your uncle. It's your cousin. It's whoever you're relating to. If your life is based on their approval, you can't love them because you're full of fear. And Ed Welch says, he says, actually what's happening in our heart is the fear of people is really about the fear of shame. It's really about the fear of shame. What he's, what he's meaning by that is, is uh, if, if my friends really knew what I was struggling with in my depression, I couldn't handle the shame. If my wife really knew what I was struggling with in, in my sexual sin, I couldn't handle the shame. If, if the people around me in my small group really knew what I was struggling with in my addiction, I, I, 
I couldn't handle the shame. And so I, I, I got I to gotta just hide it. I got to keep safe. I, I got to live hoping that they'll still approve me because God, what God says about me is not enough. I need what they say about me to be enough. You hear that? That's what's, that's what's happening in your heart is there's this idolatrous fear that gets put into shame. Are you feeling that today? Are, are, are you feeling that in relationships? Here's, here's the hope that the Bible gives us. If shame is ruling over you and in, in your idols, Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man will prove to be a snare. It'll prove to be a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. I love that because what, what, what the author's saying there, he, he's saying that, yes, it, it looks as if the approval of those people is going to be the thing that delivers you and makes you feel good, but it doesn't. It's a trap. It's a snare. You don't know it until it happens, and then you can't get out. How do you get out? He says the only way out is if God becomes the one who approves of you. That in Him there's safety. And, and, and so the only way, listen, the, the only way that we have the safety that we seek and the freedom that we live desiring is it's available only in Jesus. This is the third point, safe in Jesus. Look again at verse 7. This is where uh, the Hebrew writer goes. He says, by this, he, meaning Noah, condemned the world and became an heir uh, of the righteousness that comes by faith. Right? Genesis chapter 6 goes on to say that Noah found favor in God. Noah found favor with God. One of the scholars who was writing about that, he said that verse in Genesis 6 is actually best read backwards. That you could say God, uh, God with favor found Noah. Like that, that, that's what's happening in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. Is it, it's really a story about God pursuing Noah. That Noah, in his brokenness, you go see Noah's story. Noah was not an upright man in many ways. Noah was a sinner just like us. Noah wasn't saved because he was better than anyone else. Noah was saved because God had favor on Noah. Noah was saved because God was pursuing him. God was chasing him. God's favor was after Noah. And he comes to Noah and he tells him, I want to have favor on you. I'm choosing to, to make you safe. And so he gives him this provision of the ark, and, 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 and you, you see that, that Noah didn't deserve it, Noah didn't earn it, favor found Noah, and then the rain begins, right? After Noah completes the ark, the rain begins, and, and, and drops come down, and drops turn into puddles, and puddles turn into lakes, and lakes turn into seas, and, and the whole world is covered in raging waters and storms, and, and where is Noah? In the ark safe in the ark. God didn't withhold his judgment. He hid his son in the ark. God didn't hold back his wrath. He poured out his wrath literally in the form of a shower. He showers his wrath on all creation and Noah is safe in the ark, hidden by God himself. The Bible says that God closed the door on the ark. God hid him in there. See, the, the story of Noah's ark is, is really about uh, pointing forward to a greater ark. This ark that would come would be made of wood, or wouldn't be made of wood, it would be made of flesh. 
This ark that would come wouldn't float on water, it would walk on water. This ark to come wasn't built with human hands, it was born in the womb of a woman. Jesus is the true and better ark of God. Jesus came to hide us in himself from the judgment that we deserve. God didn't withhold his judgment, he hid us safely in his son Jesus. And as Jesus hung on the cross and the wrath of God was showering down like rain for our sin, judgment found Jesus so favor could find us. Death found Jesus so life could find us. And that's what, that's what faith finds. Faith finds safety in the Savior. Faith finds safety and refuge in Jesus the Savior. Uh, Brian Stevenson wrote a book called uh, Just Mercy. And a phenomenal book. There's a movie out if you haven't seen the movie version of it. Uh, but in Just Mercy, the, the basics of the story, he's trying to help this man who's wrongly uh, accused and is on death row. And, and so he's, he's a lawyer trying to help this man. And as the trial's going on, towards the end of the book, there, there's a bunch of African-American witnesses who are in the town who, who saw what happened. They're supposed to go to the courthouse to, to witness in, in the courtroom. And when they show up, they've locked the doors and they're not letting any of them in. And everybody's upset, they're confused, they don't know what's going on. He goes inside, he asks the judge, why won't they let him in? And the judge says, you know, he didn't know what was going on, whatever. And so then he lets people in one by one. And one of those people is Mrs. Williams. And if you've read the book or seen the movie, you, you remember Mrs. Williams. She, she was a strong character. She's this older black woman who, who was full of personality. She comes to be kind of a representative for them. And uh, she walks into the courtroom, and the first thing she's met with is this huge German shepherd. And she freezes. She's full of fear. Her body begins to tremble. Her, her eyes fill with tears. She's overwhelmed with emotion. And then she just runs out of the courtroom. Later on, she goes and tells Brian Stevenson, she says this to him. She says, Mr. Stevenson, I feel so badly. I let you down today. I wanted to be there so bad. But when I saw that dog, all I can think about was Selma, Alabama, 1965. I remember how they beat us, and I remember the dogs, and I wanted to move. I tried to move, but I just couldn't move. The next day, her sister uh, came to Mr. Stevenson, and, and, and uh, Mrs. Williams' sister said that she had been up all night. She hadn't eaten. She hadn't talked to anybody. She locked herself in her room, and she was praying. She was praying all night. She, her sister said she was praying the same prayer. God, I can't be afraid of no dog. I can't be afraid of no dog. Keep me safe. Keep me safe. Keep me safe. Over and over, all night she prayed, keep me safe. And then she shows up the next morning. She walks in and she says, I can't be afraid of no dog. I'm here. She comes in. She walks right past the dog. Everybody sits down. The judge walks in. Everybody stands up. And then they stand or they sit down again. But she stays standing. And she says in this loud, confident voice, she just says simply, I'm here. I'm here. And Brian Stevenson, when he's telling the story in the book, he says, what she's saying is not just I'm physically here. What she's saying is much deeper than that. What she's saying is, even though I might be old, even though I might be poor, even though I might be black, even though I'm, I'm marginalized and forgotten, I am here because I'm safe in my Savior. I'm here because all of that might be happening, all the suffering around me, all the pain around me, all the fear around me, but I am here because I'm safe in my Savior. 
What she was saying, what Mrs. Williams was saying is faith is this literal relocation. That you are relocating yourself in your heart, in your faith, in Jesus. You're saying, I am in Him. I'm here in my Savior. That's what Hebrews is saying. How do we endure? We endure by being hidden in Him. We endure by finding ourselves in Him, hidden in His approval, hidden in His security, hidden in His love, in His words, hidden in His work on our behalf. Hidden in Jesus means we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of our sin. We don't have to be afraid of our failures. We don't have to be afraid of our enemies. We can endure through whatever the storm of sin or suffering may be because we're hidden in Him. We endure by faith what we can't endure by sight. We can say, I'm here, safe in Jesus. I'm here, safe in Him. Whatever may come, I'm here in Him. Are you enduring like that? Are you enduring in Him or are you enduring hoping that you'll have the approval of those around you? Are you enduring hoping that you'll have the the favor of the people who you hold so highly? Or are you trusting in Him? See, today Jesus is inviting you into the ark. Just like Noah preached, He said, come, come, There's, there's plenty of space. Can you imagine Noah's little family in that massive ark? God designed it for more to come. Jesus is inviting you today into the ark of himself. He's saying, come, find refuge, find safety in me. In me. Because in me, you'll have all the approval you need. In, In me, you'll have all the acceptance you'll need. You have all the power you need. In me, you have it. But you have to trust. It has to be more than just an idea. you got to trust me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you invite us in. Thank you that you've made space for us. Sinners like us who, like Noah, don't deserve it. Sinners like us who get drunk and rebel. Sinners like us who judge in self-righteousness. Sinners like us who are full of deceit and lying. Sinners like us who are rampant in our evil, only evil continually. And yet you say, come in. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord Jesus, give us the gift of faith to be hidden in you, to know that that's enough, no matter what happens. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.